0: Hey everyone, this is Kat, and welcome to episode 24 of Raw Talk, where scientists talk and we listen. Having a mental illness like major depression can feel debilitating, but what if neither medications nor therapy work? Are there any other options for treatment-resistant depression? To find out, I sat down with Dr. Jonathan Downer, psychiatrist and researcher at the Toronto Western Hospital, to chat about his work using a technique called repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation, or RTMS for short, in treating treatment-resistant depression. It was really great having Dr. Downer on the show, and his passion for his work and his mission to make depression treatments more accessible come through loud and clear in this episode. I'm excited for you to hear all about it. Oh, and that clicking noise you hear in the first half of the episode? That's actually the sound of a course of RTMS taking place in the next room. Now, we always love to hear from you, so give us a shout on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Raw Talk Podcast, and let us know what you thought of the episode. And don't forget that you can support the show by using the Amazon affiliate link on our site. Well, all right, let's get into it. You are a physician and as well. I MD, PhD, and you joined the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Toronto in 2010. Uh, I think, I believe that's correct? That's correct. And you very promptly established an RTMS clinic here at the University Health Network, and over the last six years it's become a very high-volume clinic around treating major depression in people for whom medication and therapy have been unsuccessful. Yeah, that,
1: that's, that that's, that's, that's an accurate background.
0: Okay, excellent. With this clinic um, and with treating depression, uh, one question I had was, why Why depression? What in particular made you interested as a psychiatrist and as a researcher in looking at this disorder in particular?
1: Okay, well, I mean, so there's a lot of reasons to like depression, I guess, if you, if you want to, uh, at least if you're a physician who's trying to treat it. Uh, first of all, it's really common. About 5% of the population of Ontario is going through depression in any given year. And at least uh, one third of those are people who have already tried medications and therapy and aren't getting anywhere. So Mm -hmm. this thing we call treatment-resistant depression, where you are waking up every day saying, I wish that I weren't here, no motivation, no energy, and really not functioning in life, about 2% of the population Mm -hmm. has that kind of clinical depression uh, and isn't getting better despite the current treatments that we have. Uh, In a city like Toronto, should we say Toronto, the greater Toronto area has Mm -hmm. maybe six million people in it. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at, you know, in the order of Mm 300,000 people with treatment, resistant depression depression. in in Toronto alone. Mm -hmm. So that's a lot of work to do. Yeah. And if uh, even if we invented amazing technologies, one technology is, I mean, one of our challenges, and just one of our challenges, is to invent new interventions and new mm-hmm. treatments that can work where medications and therapies fail. Yeah. But the second challenge uh, is to ensure there's access to those treatments. Mm-hmm. So if I build an amazing treatment that requires Uh, putting somebody in a dedicated MRR scanner Mm. for three hours and costs $500,000 to buy the equipment and if the actual intervention itself costs Mm $25,000 it might fix treatment resistant depression but the problem is it's it's only going to fix a very small number of the people who have it so we need interventions that are not only effective but they have to be more than technological sideshows they have to be something we can practically envision giving to thousands and thousands of people without blowing the provincial Mm -hmm. budget and so that is the second half of the problem we work on great treatments effective treatments biologically guided treatments but also accessible cost-effective treatments that we can actually afford to give to everybody
0: absolutely and that's um, I think a lot of your work has to do with implementation and translating and making it part of standard clinical care.
1: So that's exactly right. So mm-hmm. so this is a translational lab. And translational work is a little bit different from basic science work. So mm-hmm. in basic science work, the idea is to explore and to understand to and learn. to look at the mechanisms behind how things work. The way, the analogy I use is that if you're a, a PhD or you're a master's student or, or you're a PI in a basic science lab, you're like a sensory neuron. Your job is to go out there and sort of figure out what's out there in the world. And then yeah. the the MDs who are working in the busy clinics, they're like the motor neurons. They're sort of implementing things Uh, but then we also have a need to make the whole network better and obviously uh, we can improve the sophistication of our little nervous system if we all in addition to those sensory neurons and those motor neurons we also need some interneurons that are in between the two and so clinician scientists I, i think are like the interneurons they have one foot in the clinic so they are grounded in uh in the problems that clinicians face uh, and so that's so if you're a translational lab, then really you should be taking your questions from the patients. The patients will usually tell you what what the problems are and what we need to be working on. Uh, and you should be looking for answers in the basic science literature. So even if you're not doing basic science work, you could you should still be reading the science literature, be every bit as conversant with that literature as a basic scientist would be, mm-hmm. because you're looking for little, Nuggets of wisdom or or little things that could be translated into a new clinical treatment Mm -hmm. And so what we built here in a translational lab is something where we try to look for uh, Things that are emerging from the literature that might turn into better treatments or even more cost-effective treatments or more accessible treatments And that's Mm -hmm. that's the strategy.
0: Okay, so your work both clinical and research has been mainly focused on using uh, something called repetitive Transcranial magnetic stimulation or RTMS for short so could you tell me a little bit about what what is RTMS?
1: Okay, sure. So RTMS uh, is a technique that uses powerful focused magnetic field pulses mm-hmm. to induce durable changes in the brain activity of target brain regions. Uh, nor- in the old days, if you wanted to stimulate the brain, you needed to be a surgeon, you needed to have an electrode, open everything up and go in there with an electrode and stimulate things. Mm-hmm. In the 1980s, Tony Barker, who was an engineer at Sheffield, devised a stimulator which could do all this magnetically. So it was a big mag- Magnetic coil, and it would fire a pulse of, of uh, mm-hmm. electromagnetic field about 600 microsecond on-off, and what you would get would be it would stir up electrical currents in the brain tissue mm-hmm. underneath. And so you could just put the coil on top of the head. If you aimed it properly and if you put enough power through it, then you could get the person's thumb to move or their toe to move or, or yeah. somewhere on motor cortex. It's
0: amazing.
1: It was originally designed as something for studying motor neurophysiology yeah. uh, without having to. And the older method of doing this was just to tape electrodes to the person's head and do it with an electric current. That works too, but it's a lot more painful. Mm. So <laughs> this is the magnetic version. And uh what they noticed was that if you did this repetitively if you did this again and again and again at high frequencies you induce plasticity because as you're firing these neurons synchronously what you can get is uh, the presynaptic neuron and the postsynaptic neuron to fire at the same time and so mm-hmm. the neurons that fire together you know wire together yeah. and uh, so rtms turned out to be a way of uh, stimulating and strengthening brain connections And around that same time, it was good timing because in the 1990s, when they realized that repetitive stimulation could induce plasticity, around the same time, we were just starting to get some really nice neuroimaging pictures of what brain areas were underactive in major depression and OCD and psychiatric conditions uh, where we didn't previously understand the functional neuroanatomy very well. Mm-hmm. So an actual solution was, ah, well, we know these brain areas are underactive. Let's put the RTMS stimulator over top of these areas and let's stimulate them mm-hmm. and see if we can get the person better without using medications or therapy. hmm
0: so, from what I understand, the response rate of treatment resistant depression to this therapy has been pretty impressive. So why why is it so effective when medication and therapy have failed?
1: So they managed to get approval from the FDA on a trial where the remission rate for RTMS from treatment resistant depression was on the order of 17 to 18 mm-hmm. percent. So that's not a very high remission rate until you look at the alternatives. Yeah. For a person who's already tried two or three trials of medication, the odds of getting remission on the fourth or the fifth or the sixth trial of medication can be as low as 10 to 15 percent, not terribly high. mm mm-hmm. You might say, well, it's yeah, because you guys are all medication fiends, and what you should really be doing is sitting down and talking to your patients and giving them good therapy. So there are therapies for chronic treatment-resistant depression. There's one called CBASP, the Cognitive Behavioral Assessment System of Psychotherapy. It's a manualized treatment. I think there are two or three people who do it here in Toronto, and they did a large randomized control trial on this in people with treatment-resistant depression compared to a medication. And it turns out that if you do this intensive psychotherapy, it will work for about... 20% of people. So remission rates with intensive psychotherapy, still only 20%. Treatment resistant depression is hard. Yeah. Now, if you want to use brain stimulation, you can do ECT. You know, ECT mm-hmm. is a long-standing technique. Success rates with ECT are anywhere between 60 and 90%, depending on uh, the trial.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, for certain types of depression, like psychotic depression and catatonic depression, you'll see people uh, achieving remission rates of as high as 90%. But there are other people with other kinds of depression, like the depression you'll see in people with personality disorders, like borderline personality disorder. Mm-hmm. And they might have a e- ECT remission rates that are as low as 20%. So not very good. Still not great. So with RTMS, uh, it was hovering around 17% in the early days. Um, and what we realized was that the early studies were not really designed to figure out what a maximal course of RTMS looked like. They give people five or 10 sessions. Oh, look, mm-hmm. it works better than sham. And then they'd stop. So the problem is, people read that literature and said, "Oh, well, RTMS is eighteen percent, eighteen percent remission rates. It's a little bit weak." Uh, but unfortunately, all the literature was telling us was that doing about one third of a course of RTMS is better than doing one third of a course of sham stimulation. Yeah. So if you do a full course of RTMS for twenty or thirty sessions, uh, and if you, oddly enough, if you're less picky about which patients you take, you get better outcomes. So and in a lot, mean,
0: what do you mean by being less picky?
1: So in the a lot of the early studies, they were careful to screen out comorbidities, right? So mm-hmm. you have major depression, that's great, but very very rarely do you find a person who just has major depression. They yeah. will often also have major depression plus generalized anxiety. A lot of them will have post-traumatic stress disorders, some of them will have substance use disorders, some of them have personality disorders. Mm-hmm. What we've been finding is that when you find a person who has six or seven different DSM-5 diagnoses, um, yeah. that that actually narrows down which brain areas can be involved, because they don't actually have six things wrong with them. They have, a, in terms of brain anatomy, which mm-hmm. we'll go into, uh, there's really just one or two networks which are involved. And we actually find that we, we like it when we see people have multiple disorders, because they'll mm-hmm. often we often find that those people are, do have some of the best outcomes. So in the early days, first of all, the uh, as I say, the parameters of stimulation were still being ironed out. We didn't know how many sessions to give. We didn't know how many pulses to give. We didn't know how mm-hmm. much power to use. We weren't even quite hitting the right brain area because we were using a rule that was sort of got you to the neighborhood of the right brain area, but mm-hmm. wasn't quite on. And it turns out if you make sure you've got it over go the right brain area and you give an adequate course of, say, 30 sessions or so, and uh, you make sure you include all the patients, not just the rare ones that have only major depression and nothing else, um, Uh, Then What we've been finding in our most recent trial, which was uh, a large Canadian trial in 414 patients uh, in collaboration with uh, colleagues of mine over at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, that's Jeff Daskalakis and Dan Bloomberger, as well as at University of British Columbia, uh, Fidel Vila Rodriguez, who heads Mm -hmm. up the RTMS clinic there. Okay. Three of us sat down. We did a large trial in 414 patients, which I'll tell you about in a bit. Uh, and we achieved overall remission rates that were, uh, in, in our experimental group, we got 33% remission and we got 50% response. Wow. So we're still not at ECT levels, but mm-hmm. it's a lot better than it was. So I can tell the patient you have at least a 50-50 chance of getting, you know, yeah. ha- your symptoms cutting half, and you have a one in three chance that your symptoms will be will be, uh improve to the point where you say I don't feel depressed anymore Mm -hmm. and that's as I said at this point that's that's superior to medication for treatment resistant depression and it seems to outperform psychotherapy Mm -hmm. so the quest is now on to see if we can get those remission rates up even higher hey
3: everyone this is grace and for this episode's word on the street I reached out to people to try and understand the general perceptions and knowledge about using rtms and ect Not very many people knew about either of these treatments or how they worked. And not surprisingly, there was negative stigma around ECT especially. First, can I ask you to introduce yourself?
4: Hi, I'm John Abrams. I'm an installer here at U of T. We install the art shows.
3: What are your first thoughts when you hear about these types of treatments? Well,
4: uh, my my first thoughts go back to to the 50s and 60s during the experiments they did on on, uh, helping people with electric shock therapy. Is it painful? I don't know.
3: So it's evolved a lot. They now do, uh, they put you under anesthesia.
4: Would it be micro, sort of micro charges so you wouldn't notice them?
3: I think it's a teensy bit painful and you don't move at all because of the electric current and you can have some side effects. Like you, your memory can be a little bit altered and you can feel a little bit nauseous that day. Uh, So there are definitely side effects, um, but it also helps for people who are having difficulties responding to treatment. It helps 60 to 90% of them feel better.
4: Oh, um, does does it, does it does memory loss occur?
3: So minor memory loss does occur for some people, and it's usually in the last couple of weeks, and it often goes away as well.
4: Oh, okay. Um, uh, yeah, I I guess uh, if you're really suffering from depression, you would want to try anything.
3: Do you feel like uh, people know about these treatments, or
4: I think CBC covers it quite a bit. And everybody I know listens to CBC. <laughs>
5: Hi, I'm Michaela I'm a third year student here. What do you study? I'm studying neuroscience. So
3: first of all, have you heard about uh, repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation or electroconvulsive therapy? And I guess, what are your first thoughts when you hear about these two types of treatments?
5: Um, I don't know a lot about them, uh, but from what I do know, it's definitely up and coming. Um, it's something that's still kind of experimental, so I'm not, I'm not sure about it a lot, but um, it has been seen to be beneficial for some people uh, especially in conjunction with other therapies. So I think it's definitely something worth looking into.
0: Where did you learn about RTMS or ECT?
5: Um, I heard about them a bit in my cognitive science class, actually. Um, my professor is really big on trans, uh, transmagnetic cranial stimulation. So he's per, Professor um, Bervicki. He was looking into it a lot, so he mentioned it a few times in lecture.
0: You seem to be very well aware of what these therapies are given your educational background, but I was wondering what what do you think people know more generally about these options for for treatment for depression, and just what do you think is the general opinion of something like transcranial stimulation or
5: electroconvulsive therapy even in the general public? I think that it's not very well known. Uh, From what I know, people aren't very much aware of what those therapies are or what they can do. Uh, Cognitive behavioral therapy is kind of up and coming in terms of like people knowing about it so a lot of more people know about you know cognitive behavioral therapy or you know talking therapies or antidepressants um, but they're not really aware of any type of like electrostimulation and people who are aware of it tend to think of just like electroshock therapy as something very primitive and scary and like Um, I actually had my my boss from my job actually talk to me about it and she was just saying like I can't believe we're still zapping people and I'm like it's not as simple as that actually. It can be very helpful but it's also debated so there's a lot to look into and I think that it can send a very scary message to people who aren't very aware of what it is.
6: So my name is Emily Gilbert. I'm a third year PhD student in the Department of Anthropology in the School for the
3: Environment. So first of all, have you ever heard of transcranial magnetic stimulation as a treatment for depression? No. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, have you ever heard of electric compulsion therapy as a treatment? Yes. But
6: I, I thought that that was more of a thing of the past. But maybe that's totally... I don't know that much about depression treatment, to be honest. Um, but I thought that like shock therapy, shock treatment therapy, was sort of a thing of years past. I
3: was gonna, what are your first thoughts when you kind of hear a little bit more about that? You kind of were already talking about... Um, your first kind of electric shock shock therapy yeah so I know my
6: grandmother had that's why I thought it was a thing of the past Mm -hmm. my grandmother um, dealt with depression and she had electric shock therapy I'm not sure if that's what it's called now Um, and my family was always just very critical of the impact of that but that was like I don't know a long time ago
3: Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm sure it's improved at this point Mm -hmm. Do you know if it if it treated her depression or or what side effects she had that yeah. your family was critical of? So I know my family
6: thought that it it made her like less receptive afterwards, and wasn't it wasn't clear whether it treated her depression.
0: So I guess another question to ask around RTMS is, is it safer? It's not invasive, but you're still... Yeah, so there are upsides and downsides
1: to every treatment. Uh, Safety is one of the upsides of RTMS. It's really safe Mm. uh, compared to many treatments that are out there. The only serious side effect that uh, is reported is the uh, every once in a while you'll have someone have a seizure. We used to report a seizure rate of maybe one in a thousand patients. Mm-hmm. We're now, as we've had more experience, we think it's lower than that. We think it might be as low as one in ten thousand. The seizure rate on medications is about one in a thousand. So the rate of seizures for RTMS is, and that's the main thing people talk about: is am I going to have a seizure? So mm-hmm. it's pretty rare. Uh, we've been running our clinic since 2011. We've had 2,500 referrals to the clinic and. We've probably performed 30 or 40,000 sessions of stimulation so far, no seizures. So it's pretty rare. Uh, In terms of the tolerability, people will get things like uh, it's painful during Mm -hmm. the stimulation itself. So you definitely feel like you're being drilled in the head with static electricity, and you may feel it in your eyes, your nose, your teeth, and all all the different Mm -hmm. branches of the the trigeminal nerve. But uh, most people find they can tolerate it. But there is one big drawback to RTMS, and that's that it's really inconvenient. Uh, you need, as I was alluding to, you need 30 sessions of stimulation. And so if you live in you know, Pickering or Ajax or you live far from the downtown, that means you're driving down to hospital Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday for six weeks. Mm-hmm. So it's a safe treatment, but it's, it's, it's an inconvenient treatment.
0: I guess that goes back to the accessibility point you were making exactly. earlier. Exactly, correct. Another question, and this is something that you just mentioned, was uh, around comorbidities and this, these common brain networks or pathways or areas that you see in a lot of different psychiatric illnesses. I wonder if you can expand more on that, on the okay. science behind that.
1: Absolutely. Okay, so one of the things that we've been hammering out over the last uh, say five to seven years is there have been more and more structural neuroimaging studies not functional but structural neuroimaging mm-hmm. studies in psychiatric disorders and those are interesting because what you do is you'll take a T1 anatomical MRI of the person, and which shows the gray matter and the white matter nicely, and you collect those from say a thousand people with depression and a thousand people who don't have depression, and if you run uh, software that measures the thickness of the gray matter, you can sometimes find that there are areas of the brain that are subtly, subtly mm-hmm. thinner or okay. thicker in certain types of disorders. And the first of these studies started coming around in 2008, 2009, and bipolar disorder and schizophrenia and, and major depression, and then they started coming out for PTSD and OCD. And mm-hmm. uh, so every year when I taught my course to the psychiatry residents, I, I had more and more of these structural imaging studies to say, wow, oh, we're starting to figure out where the lesions are. I mean, they're very subtle, but if you look at enough people, you can spot them. In 2015, Mm -hmm. uh, a team at Stanford with my colleague Amit Etkin went and collected up 193 of these studies and Mm -hmm. they had over 7,000 people in them. And they asked a really interesting question, which is, are the substrates all different? Mm -hmm. Or if you overlap them all, is there a common set of areas which is involved across all psychiatric disorders? Mm -hmm. And so they looked at them all and they looked at bipolar disorders, schizophrenia, major depression, anxiety disorders, OCD, and substance use disorders. And they were able to find that, yes, they all look different. But if you overlap them all, there were some areas that were consistently shrunken down in all of them. And those were the anterior insula on both sides and the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex on both Mm sides. Now, to someone who knows their brain networks, that was really interesting because those areas aren't random. They map exactly onto one of Mm -hmm. the brain networks. And it's a a well-studied network called the salience network. In fact, I did my PhD on it back in... uh, back in the, I guess, the late 90s, early 2000s with my supervisor, Karen Davis, um, we call, we talked about it as a network that was responsive to salient events, but I, I don't think the name salience network caught on right away until, but then you know, years later, it turns out everybody was calling it the salience network. So, uh, and it Try turns me. out that, uh, and it turns out that it's rather central to psychiatry. Mm-hmm. So the irony was that in my grad school, I, I'd done all this work. And then I remember publishing a paper and and realizing that they'd managed to build an entire wing onto the hospital in the time it took me to publish one paper (laughs) and so that that's helped to propel me towards medicine and translational research because I said well this salience network is great but I'm sure it's not going to be useful for anything for a really long time and I have no idea what that would be and then lo and behold (laughs) 20 20 years (laughs) later I'm we are doing RTMS. And so it turns out that this RTMS field I'm doing, we eventually discovered that the key to mm. the, the common neurobiological substrate of many psychiatric disorders and the, area that we, the areas of the brain that we spend the most time stimulating with RTMS turn out to be this salience network. And so now you're starting to see why there are why we find RTMS works better in those patients who have a little bit of lots of things. Because if you have a little bit of lots of disorders, then it's probably your salience network, Mm -hmm. and the RTMS uh, treatments seem to work best when you target areas of the brain that are in the salience network. Mm -hmm. So that's one group. So those seem to be the group of people we're getting better when I say we're getting 33% of people to remission. Mm -hmm. um, I think what we're saying is we're not saying that we have a treatment that RTMS is a treatment that is. 33% effective for all patients Mm -hmm. what we're saying is major depression is a bit of a a grab bag of many different brain pathologies Some of those people have salience network problems And you can kind of spot them because they don't just have depression They usually have a few other things in there like ADHD or binge eating or signs of impulse control Mm -hmm. because uh, Impulse control difficulties because the salience networks usual job is to uh, Do a thing called cognitive control which is the ability to self-regulate your thoughts and your behaviors and emotions so we all know people like this. I mean, you, you or I or anybody will know someone who's just, you know, they might be really bright, but they're a little difficult at cognitive control. They tend to ramble a bit. They're easily emotionally labile. They, they're disorganized. They don't quite show up on time. They're ADHD-ish about stuff, and they're, and they're sort of a little bit all over the place. Mm-hmm. And those people, when they get depressed, uh, tend to do well on RTMS because mm-hmm. if you can glue back together their salience network, then they regain the ability to control their thoughts and their emotions, and they'll often dig their way out.
0: So have you started, or do you have any information on the effectiveness of RTMS for patients who have other psychiatric illnesses and not major depression that's not what they come to you for?
1: Well so that's it so we've done a bit of this work and there—and of course lots of labs all over the world have looked at RTMS and mm-hmm. there are so major depression has been by far and away the most common indication for it. We have found that RTMS doesn't seem to care whether your depression is the unipolar depression or bipolar disorder depression so uh, people with bipolar disorder will often do just as well on RTMS. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have also found that uh, it works quite well for for people who have post-traumatic stress disorder Mm -hmm. and other labs have published on that as well. Mm -hmm. We also stumbled across the finding that it works really well for people who have binge eating or purging. And so people who have Mm -hmm. binge eating or purging, bulimia nervosa, or the type of anorexia where people also binge and purge, they will often find their binging and purging gets better with RTMS. Anorexia, unfortunately, we haven't done quite as well with, so we're still trying to figure out where in the brain would be the best places to go for anorexia. Yeah. We have uh, we found out by accident that it's helping some people with borderline personality disorder to at least get over their depression, which is nice because there aren't many treatments for depression and borderline personality disorder. There's, there's a well-established therapy called DBT, which works nicely, but uh, it takes a year and it's hard to get into, and uh, mm-hmm. there are groups and individuals, and it's resource intensive. So if we can help some people who are on the wait list for for dbt groups um, by giving them rtms and if we get them ready for their dbt by improving their cognitive control and maybe bringing down their depression then i'm going to call that a win so uh okay. and then of course you have obsessive compulsive disorder that works out well some people are studying it for substance use disorders we haven't really done that very much schizophrenia has been a toughie many networks are involved in schizophrenia it's one of the of all the disorders it's the one that seems involve the most networks in the brain okay. and so people have looked at individual symptoms like can we help people with their working memory and schizophrenia mm-hmm. can we damp down auditory hallucinations and schizophrenia mm-hmm. but unfortunately schizophrenia has a lot of different corners to it Everywhere because, the because brain. there's so many different mm-hmm. areas of the brain that are involved so it's hard to mm-hmm. just target one spot and to get the person better
0: mm-hmm. so you mentioned that depression is a mixed bag I don't know if maybe people are aware of this but depression can be very heterogeneous and there's very many different subtypes and that's something that we're still continuing to investigate today So I was wondering if, we know about the salience network, but if there's a way to pinpoint the treatment even more to identify a particular part of the network for different subtypes of depression and if that would make the treatment more effective.
1: Okay, great. So so different subtypes of depression or understanding the heterogeneity of depression is a big worldwide project right now. And Mm -hmm. there are giant collaborations looking at collecting lots of biomarkers like... Mm -hmm. You know, genomics, proteomics, blood samples, um, clinical scales, psychometric scales, mm-hmm. EEGs, PET scans, functional MRIs uh, on lots and lots and lots of people with depression. There are collaborations in the U.S. There's one called Embark. There's an international one called iSpot. There's a big Canadian one called CanBind led by Dr. Sid Kennedy, who's a colleague of mine here. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there are a bunch of these different biomarker studies out there where they're taking hundreds and hundreds of people who have depression and trying to just do lots of different biomarkers and tests on on them to try and figure out what the differences are so it's still early days yet but it does look like there are three domains or three dimensions in depression which can be affected Mm -hmm. and they're affected to different degrees in different people one of those is cognitive control so if you measure if you Mm -hmm. let's say you put people with depression on a little task where they have to do a thing called this stroop task which involves naming the ink that a word, the color of the ink that a word is written written in as opposed to the actual word, which will say red, green, or blue, but the ink color is different, so you have to exert some cognitive control to say the proper thing. Uh, So you can put people on cognitive control tasks, and some people with depression do well, and some people do not do well there's another dimension that is based on sort of high levels of anxiety and neuroticism and a tendency to be a little bit obsessive about negative things Uh, and there's another dimension within depression which is that some people have a relative loss of the ability to experience reward and pleasure and you can measure that by looking at how well they learn from positive feedback some people just They kind of ignore positive feedback, and they only learn from negative feedback. And uh, you can look at just the effects, the motivating effects of reward on people. And there are various ways to measure it. And some people with depression have very little motivating effect from reward. And if you look at their brain scans, you find they even have very little brain activation from reward. So that's a thing called that's a marker of a thing called anhedonia or the difficulty experiencing joy or pleasure. So three dimensions: your capacity for reward, uh, your capacity for anti-reward or the tendency to sort of look at the negative, and then on top of that, the cognitive control that allows you to the the so-called wisdom to know the difference or the Mm -hmm. the ability to regulate between the the two. And so all depressed people uh, have varying contributions from those three things. Mm -hmm. And that's useful. Again, I I think one of the best studies that did that was uh, my colleague Diego Pizzagalli down at uh, Harvard. He uh, did all these tests on people with depression. But on top of that, he also recorded EEGs from them. So he was able to ask, well, now that we know that some people have high levels of cognitive control and some don't, some people have high levels of neuroticism and some don't, some people have high levels of reward motivation and some people have poor levels of reward motivation, what does that go with in the brain activity? And so he was able to look at the EEGs and they were able to map that certain EEG signatures coming out of certain regions of the brain were associated mm-hmm. with these three different uh, what he called endophenotypes are all called dimensions within mm-hmm. depression. So that's interesting. It suggests that, you know, these different dimensions contribute to the person's depression and they have specific unique brain targets. Mm-hmm. If they have specific unique brain targets, mm-hmm. that means that if we have, well, that might not matter as much for therapy or medications, but if you have an RTMS coil, then it's going to do different things depending on what part of the brain you put it on. Mm-hmm. So now we can potentially put it on different parts of the brain to help people with different angles of their disorder.
0: It's almost like individualizing or tailoring it to each patient's particular experience. That's the idea, yeah, so
1: so in a personalized medicine approach, what you would do is you bring in each patient, you'd measure their capacity on these three dimensions or maybe more dimensions Mm. if we discover more of them, and uh, then we would tailor a specific treatment just for you and Mm. we would do exactly that. That's one approach to medicine, is the uh, personalized, predict, and tailor approach to medicine, Uh, and it's expensive and it is appropriate for high expense, low throughput technologies, right? Mm. But you'll notice that there lots of giant public health problems where we don't use this approach so i mean if we were trying to treat hiv we could in theory collect blood samples and do massive uh you know genetic sequencing and and figure out the uh the sequences of that particular person's viral population load and uh, we could also look at uh their p450 enzymes and how they metabolize various different medications and we could try and come up with a perfect little cocktail of medications to try and help that person we actually don't do that for hiv we mm-hmm. just did the opposite approach we said let's instead figure out how to take four or five treatments make them really fast and cheap put them in one pill so the person just have to take one a day and then let's get those out to people mm mm-hmm. And for high, pop, for high prevalence disorders, it's sometimes faster to do the, let's make it fast, cheap, and give it to everybody, as opposed to the, let's be personalized and tailor it to the individual mm-hmm. person.
0: Uh, so that brings us back to the, the problem of access to a treatment like RTMS. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how your work is um, helping to improve access for patients to this treatment. It's not currently covered That's by uh, most of our provincial healthcare plans. I think it's only available in Saskatchewan and Quebec. And you've been an advocate for pushing OHIP, for example, to to include it. So I was wondering if you could talk about that.
1: Sure, absolutely. So uh, so there are two corners to our research efforts, and one of them is that we are trying to look at a personalized medicine approach to improve the remission rates. At the same time, we're also looking at how do we make RTMS faster and cheaper and more cost-effective. So that's been where we've had a recent success, uh, and I'm going to go back to that study that I talked about with my colleagues at UBC and ChemH where um, these three Canadian sites uh, did a study that was funded by CIHR Mm -hmm. and by uh, a number of philanthropic donors to this hospital and to the other hospitals. And what we did is we we were trying to figure out how to make RTMS not better but faster. Mm -hmm. Better was challenging. Better may require us to sort of personalize the treatment, target multiple brain areas. But one of the problems with doing that is that it's hard to target multiple brain areas with conventional treatments. Conventional treatments require 38 minutes in the chair. So the standard FDA-approved session is a 37.5-minute session of stimulation Mm -hmm. using 10 hertz uh, RTMS, which is known as high-frequency RTMS, to Mm -hmm. strengthen the activity in the left uh, frontal lobe, left dorsolateral prefrontal Mm -hmm. cortex. And that's uh, 20 that's, or 30
0: times over a full course. Yeah,
1: so the person yeah. has to come in 20 or 30 times to do it. In the U.S., they sometimes will do as many as 40 sessions, mm-hmm. so they'll do a lot of them. Uh, but there's a problem with that. So imagine you go out and you buy an expensive $100,000 RTMS machine and you hire a technician. Well, you're going to be treating maybe seven or eight patients a day. Mm-hmm. And that's it. And if a course of treatment is, say, we'll call it 24 sessions to be somewhere in the middle, Mm. then that means that at best I'm going to be doing one course of treatment every three days. Mm. And if there are 240 working days in a year, maybe there'd be a bit more than that. We'll say 240 working days in a year. That means on one machine I can only treat about 80 people. Yeah. Right. So it's going to be hard to make a dent in 120,000 people in Toronto let alone you know the vastly larger number of 2% of the whole Canadian population which would be closer to you know 620,000 people. Mm-hmm. So what we need to do is make it faster. And uh, and the reality is that we would be prepared to accept that it's faster even if it's not better. If it's just faster. So even if the remission rates don't go up but if we come up with a new technique that could be done in three minutes instead of 38 minutes Mm -hmm. that would be helpful so then we go back to our translational neuroscientist approach which is let's go to the literature and see what there is that could help us in 2005 a team out of london in the uk uh, with john rothwell and uh, huang and colleagues in 2005 they devise a new kind of RTMS called theta burst stimulation. In theta burst stimulation, you repattern the pulses so they sort of mimic the theta rhythms of the brain because the theta rhythms of the brain, at least in the hippocampus, in in uh, slice preparations, seem to be more efficient for inducing plasticity.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And they were able to show that you could get really good plasticity in the motor cortex by doing just three minutes of stimulation using this theta burst protocol. Wow. And so that was exciting. And then people studied that more at the basic level. And then a few clinicians started going and doing studies in, in where they would use theta burst pulses as a treatment. And mm-hmm. initially, they were just open label, but it looked like it wasn't giving anybody seizures, and it looked like it was safe and well-tolerated, and some people were getting better. And then they even did a few sham-controlled studies in small numbers of people, and they said, oh, it, looks, it works better than sham. Mm-hmm. So that sounds great. Mm-hmm. But the real question is not whether it works better than sham. The real question is, does it work better than the standard of care we're already doing? So how does it compare to the 38 minute FDA approved treatments that they're using in the U S and which are widely used elsewhere? Mm -hmm. And no one really done that question. A question like that is hard because you need to study a lot more patients to say that two things are the same than to say that two things are different. And our theory was that it wasn't going to be better. It was just going to be as good. Mm -hmm. But it would be only three minutes and if it's only three minutes then you can book 10 minute appointments you could get four or five times as many patients and you could easily do 25 sessions a day per machine so if you have one machine you can now take one new patient every single day on average Mm -hmm. and you can still keep up so we started in 2013 we ran the study for three and a half years we had 414 people randomized into it. And uh, we spent a year analyzing the data. It's just recently been submitted. Mm -hmm. So it's under consideration right now. Uh, But it's been presented in abstract form. And so I can tell you, uh, echoing that presentation, that the three-minute treatments were non-inferior to the 10 Hertz treatments. In fact, the remission rates were a little bit higher. We got a 33% remission on the three-minute treatment, and it was a 28% remission on the 38-minute treatment. So that difference wasn't statistically significant. We weren't able to prove that it was superior And it doesn't look like it's superior. But the overall outcomes were non inferior to a very sharp margin. So this has been a big transformation here in Canada because most clinics in Canada are now using short treatments, mm-hmm. and it means that we are now able to do three or four times as much work. In the U.S., it means that they can they can use that in various ways. What it means is the treatment can be a lot cheaper because mm-hmm. you're, once you've bought the machine and, and hired staff, then those are your costs. And so if you can treat four times as many people, then the treatment doesn't have to cost. It can cost four times less, mm-hmm. and everything is still paid for.
7: Mm-hmm.
1: Or if in the U.S., you could charge, you know, three times less money and make a bit more money than you did before. So, uh, so there will be uh, incentives for people to do this. But the main thing is not to, you know, to improve people's financial incentives. Obviously, the main thing is to improve access. Mm-hmm. And so, when we talk to the ministry about this, we say, "Well, look, uh, psychiatrists uh, in a RTMS clinic can supervise four or five machines, maybe more." Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, from a systems perspective. An RTMS machine isn't really a brain stimulator at all. It's just mm-hmm. a machine that turns one psychiatrist into four. And so it's that's kind sort of an the amazing machine. <laughs> and yeah, uh, yeah it, obviously it doesn't replace therapy and medications, but the idea is that for the very large numbers of people who aren't doing well on therapy and medications, uh, mm-hmm. RTMS can be another option for them. Prior to this, the only option for them was to go to ECT.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: ECT works quite effectively for a lot of people, but not mm-hmm. for everybody. The problem is that a lot of people are, are a little afraid of ECT because you'll get uh, cognitive adverse effects. It mm-hmm. requires anesthesia. It requires seizure induction. Um Sorry, and so one, is, uh, ECT is electroconvulsive therapy. ECT is therapy, yeah. right? So the so-called yeah. the so-called shock therapy, yeah. uh, which uh, it remains in use mm-hmm. because it's very effective, and uh, a lot of patients sign up to do it because it helps them, because it's it it uh, it saves their lives, it stops them from being suicidal, and it returns them to normal functioning. And if they're psychotic or catatonic, those very severe forms of depression do especially well on ECT. Mm-hmm. So let's say we fixed its image problem and everybody wanted ECT, we actually couldn't give ECT to everybody because we're already full on ECT. And mm-hmm. we're and capacity in Ontario is about sixteen hundred. So even if we had ten times the ECT capacity that we currently have now, let's say we decided to just, you know, do ten times as much ECT per capita as any other place in the world. Mm-hmm. We're still only treating 15,000, 20,000 people a year out of a total of 300,000 people in Ontario. I'm just using Ontario as it's, that's the area I have the numbers for. Yeah. So the reality is that we can't just say, well, you know, if there's no medications or therapy, you should go to do ECT. We don't have enough ECT to give to everybody. And, it's, and it would be too expensive to do it if we did. Mm-hmm. RTMS therefore fills a niche. So there's a niche that needs to be Mm -hmm. filled in between medications and therapy and ECT. Mm -hmm. It's a niche that patients want because a lot of them don't want to go to ECT. Mm -hmm. It's a niche that funders should want because we can't afford to give everybody ECT. And it's a niche that anybody who's interested in logistics should want because we don't have the capacity to give everybody ECT. So we can either leave people at home with their depression or we can start to treat them. Mm -hmm. And each person with major depression that's treatment resistant is reckoned to consume somewhere between ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars a year of services, foregone tax revenue, disability payments, their you know, their spouses or other caregivers taking time off work to help them and that sort of thing. So it's mm-hmm. expensive it, leaving aside the compassion argument, it's actually expensive to just leave people, leave people sitting be, there with yeah. so if we can make RTMS into a treatment that costs maybe two thousand dollars for a course, then even if it's only working remission in one out of three people, then we can promise that every $6,000 you spend on RTMS, you get a remission. Mm -hmm. And that's probably cheaper than spending $20,000 keeping the people just not doing, just leaving them being depressed so what we've tried to do is that uh, obviously for compassionate reasons we want to treat everybody with depression but Mm -hmm. when it comes down to funding funding bodies want to see numbers and so we think that we can also make an economic argument that it is cheaper to do rtms than to just leave people being depressed and so that's so that's where things currently
3: stand
7: can you introduce yourself okay well i'm a student at uft in my fourth year i'm taking human biology and that's my one of my majors (laughs) so i guess you yourself didn't know too much about these types of treatments do
3: you think that uh, very many people are knowledgeable about them
7: probably not but then again i don't know i've never heard other people talk about it i've never really heard it other than today never heard it i guess in media in news whatever newspapers (laughs) so i i would assume not but you never know maybe there's people out there that have tried it themselves that know other people that have tried it or are trying it have heard of it in the in our university community maybe they've been exposed to it other students but I'm unfamiliar just myself so what
3: are your thoughts on the future of these treatments uh, if you have any and do you think it's important for people to know about this?
7: Sure. I definitely think it's it's good that people have options because somebody is suffering from depression. Obviously, it's one of those invisible illnesses. It's still in today's society, there's still stigma surrounding it. So people don't want to talk better. They don't want to address those concerns. Um, maybe they're hesitant to get treatments. Maybe they don't know what options they do have. So yeah, if, if there was different different methods it became more talked about oh these methods are available they're produce better results maybe people are more interested then they're gonna open up the discussion about these illnesses these treatments more so yeah it's just I guess making making way for more discussion (laughs) do you think people should know about these options or do
3: you feel like people do I don't think
6: people do like depression is becoming much more talked about and and the stigma is is lessening a lot but I don't know that much about it and I don't know what treatments would be and so I think that there's still a lot of unless you're diagnosed and you're seeing like a physician or you're seeking help I feel that a lot of people don't know how it's treated or it's a vague idea of like counseling and drugs that are poorly understood so I think that um Definitely, you know, talking to people about how it's treated and the prevalence of this type of
3: treatment is really great. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Kind of also that pre, like making it more accessible. So you already have to be seeing a psychiatrist or seeing someone in order to even know any of this. Yes. And kind of starting to educate people before that stage. Yes. Mm -hmm. That they're potentially more hopeful also about their own definitely
6: and I think often like I have a friend who has recently had a family member who's been like diagnosed with depression and it had to get sort of to a breaking point before that happened and so I think that this general discussion is really helpful so that it doesn't become crisis mode before it's addressed.
8: Depression is I think I think something that universities are getting better at talking about and better at addressing as a central issue kind of on its own but I'm not sure they're necessarily kind of joining up the dots yet in terms of really understanding why I think you know why it is becoming a kind of a kind of epidemic on on campuses yeah. I, don't know if, yeah.
9: yeah I think that I mean certainly both of us have uh, friends who suffer from depression as grad students and or sessionals also actually not to say it doesn't yeah. affect undergrads and faculty too but yeah, I have seen a lot of that. I think a lot of our friends are the kind of people that have become more comfortable talking about it and sharing it with people. So I think we know because of what they do and what they work on, we know um, more people who acknowledge and share with people that they, they're suffering from depression and, and when they are and what uh, the effects on them are. Um, but of course, I know uh, lots of people of course, don't say anything or don't even recognize it necessarily in themselves. So
3: question just about you kind of mentioned specifically grad students a lot of them uh, face these issues I was wondering if you could expand on that or potentially why you think that's the case specifically with this population Mm -hmm.
8: well yeah I mean I mean part of it is is the kind of imposter syndrome that that I think you know a lot of people feel that that becomes especially exacerbated in the kind of grad school context where you're Expected to be an expert before you have the status of being an expert, and that I think is partly at the root of things. I mean, also, you know, of course, too, it's you know, it's partly a lifestyle thing. You know, it's a lot of people mostly working on their own, mostly w- without a lot of supervision. It's yeah, it's often quite an isolating process, and that that necessarily yeah, yeah leads to issues.
9: I also think that um, grad students are often overwhelmed by the amount of things they are supposed to do and the people that they're responsible to and the number of um yeah responsibilities work they you know ta ra do your own work finish your phd all those kind of things and i think people feel often overwhelmed and unsupported um so if you are prone to suffering from depression it doesn't seem surprising that that would be a setting in which you would be likely to to suffer bouts of it i think
3: so we were wondering have you ever heard of transcranial magnetic stimulation as a treatment for depression
9: the electro thing just immediately makes you think of like the 19th century like Early 20th century kind of electroshock therapy. So it probably doesn't have the best immediate connotation for people for that reason because I imagine, at least really for me, it kind of comes up, you know, like um, Return to Oz you know film. <laughs> She's got like um, nasty electroshock therapy. So I think probably that. Um, the other side of it makes me think more of MRIs.
8: It's interesting to hear if, like, 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 if there is kind of a shift towards that, just because I feel like there's, you know, you know, there's been this kind of ongoing conversation about, you know, how many people are actually, you know, on anti-antidepressant drugs and what alternative, what form- the, you know, alternative um, forms of treatment there are, and and that's kind of linked to the whole conversation about kind of the kind of stigmatization of people for, for taking antidepressants or, or, for, or for not, and people kind of, you know, saying, oh, well, you're taking the wrong kind of treatment, you know, what are you doing, blah, blah, blah. Um, so, yeah, it's, I mean, I mean I feel like we, I, I feel like hopefully we're, we're kind of moving more to a stage where, where kind of there's more of an understanding that different treatments will work for different people and that, you know, sometimes people, if they, you know, they need full-on, you know, interventions, not just, not just, Kind of therapy, like that's okay, and that's you know, that. so yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, it, it, it definitely does have those connotations, but um, yeah, I guess hopefully it, it sounds like it's just it's becoming also, one of a range of things.
9: Interesting to hear sort of attempts that are more overtly, um, like sort of physical attempts to to kind of like, um, rather mm. than obviously chemical, which is more what mm. I think we're used to, or, or sort of the kind of talk therapy and then the kind of chemicals um, that you're used to. So it's interesting to hear if if people are thinking that there are ways of approaching it that are from that, that angle instead.
3: With origins in the 1930s, ECT, or electric shock therapy, has been used to treat mental illness for quite a while. However, in the 1960s and 1970s, evidence emerged that ECT was being abused to control and subdue patients in psychiatric hospitals. This has not been the case for a long time now. And these days, improvements have been made, such as using anesthesia and muscle relaxants to prevent pain and potentially harmful movements. It is true that ECT has some side effects, such as memory loss, nausea, but are these much different or more severe than those involved in using chemotherapy to treat cancer?
0: So you did your PhD with Dr. Karen Davis, who we've actually featured in season one. Oh, that's um, right. You should go listen to her episode. Yeah. <laughs> um, and now you yourself are supervising a number of graduate students, and you've graduated uh, a few. So what has that supervisory experience been like for you, and do you find that you're, you're doing certain things, or your supervisory style borrowed something from Karen, or are you completely different from the way she was? So I, I,
1: I wish I could run my supervision the way Karen Karen <laughs> was the most accessible supervisor. Uh, yeah. I could just always walk down the hall and knock on her door anytime and she was always busy but she would always say come in and we would walk and we'd sit down and I could talk to her about anything I wanted it was a student's dream um, I strived for but will never achieve that level of accessibility because I'm half the time down here in the clinic and I'm over teaching and uh, and so there's there's sort of I have to wear a lot of hats so I would like to be much more accessible for my students and I think Karen still sets a bar of accessibility and, and, and engagement that I, I, I continue to strive for during during my career as a supervisor uh but that said i mean it's it's really rewarding to work with the students they bring so much energy and enthusiasm to it uh they're so bright and motivated uh they it's really lovely to see them working well together um science is more and more becoming a team effort and a collaborative approach and even funding bodies want to see collaborations going on. So that is one thing I try to consciously model in the lab. I encourage students to not just work on their own projects, but mm-hmm. actually team up. And So one of one of them may be leading a project, but they'll have a, a second person who helps them on the project, and they can get a lot more done this way. So I encourage them to do their projects in collaboration. So they help each other with collecting the EGS, running the patients, screening the patients, mm-hmm. and then uh, they get more authorships from it, so, but they also, I think it, it's good practice for a world where the new funding arrangements are going to encourage collaboration rather than every scientist doing a solo effort, mm-hmm. and so that's one thing I've tried to focus on, and we do have a nice collaborative bunch of students over, and, and they're, they're really doing excellent work yeah. up there. So yeah, so that part's been very rewarding. Uh, I guess the bigger s- sense is really just uh, as, as supervisors, I, th- I think we have to think of our way as, as sort of we're, we're clearing the way for the people behind us to kind of go further. So mm-hmm. our role is to facilitate. Our role is to encourage them forward. Our role is to model for them and get them to know to be inspired to really feel passionate about what they work on and at the same time to do the other side of science which is being meticulous and and being conscientious and going over everything three times and Mm -hmm. trouble checking and triple checking everything and maintaining your healthy skepticism and and just uh, getting all your ducks in a row and so i I think it was eo wilson who said that the Mm -hmm. scientist needs the uh soul of a poet but the habits of a bookkeeper and every scientist is probably a little bit more poet than bookkeeper or a bit more bookkeeper than poet we have different styles but Again, with collaboration, you can get the more poetry scientists to team up with the more bookkeeper scientists and vice mm-hmm. versa so that you can get both of those essential qualities in the same team, if not in the same person. And so I, I think that's been part of it, has been trying to encourage the students to go forward with that and with the knowledge that uh, you're mm-hmm. clearing the way for them so that they can go further. All okay.
0: right. And I think that's a really good place to stop. Thank you again for sitting down with us. Until next time. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the university. To learn more about the show, visit our website at rawtalkpodcast.com and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our site when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw.
1: Because you're looking for little nuggets of wisdom or or little things that could be translated into a new clinical
2: treatment.